Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Matter to you guys, it really did to me because growing up there was a lot of controversy around it, but apparently for you guys there wasn't, so lucky you guys. Um, so I will try not to overdo that aspect today. Um, so where we left off with chapter one was um, St. Paul starts off by ripping apart the pagans, okay, the, those of the Gentile background. Um, and again, the, the point that he's starting in this first section, the first four chapters, is to say, just to, just to revisit very, very briefly, is that when Rome had kicked out the Jews, right, so when all the Jews had been removed, um, there became an ethnocentricity to the church in Rome that was more about pagans, right? Then the Jews come back, and now there's this conflict to some extent between them. So St. Paul, in the first chapter, rips apart the Gentiles, right? Where he's like, okay, you guys turned away from God, you turned to idols, you turned to paganism, you worship the creature rather than the created, you're all messed up. Chapter two, he's gonna turn around and he's gonna attack the Jews. Um, and say, you're all messed up. Because where he's trying to go with all this is to say, you're not good and you're not good, none of us are good, okay? Um, is that we, as humanity, have all fallen short um, <clears throat> from God and that we're not in this state of relationship and it needs to be made right, right? And that was the whole point of my digression about the being made right part is that it's all pointing to how do we get made right? Is it through the law? Because you've got the Jews who are saying you need to do these rituals, right? That's how you get made right. If you follow the Mosaic law, you're made right. And you have the Gentiles saying, well, we were just fine without you, right? And so... Where Paul's going with it is you're made right through this person who is, who is, who is Christ. So this chapter starts off as a diatribe, literally. Um, and it's a, a diatribe is a bitter attack <laughs> against someone. Um, and so it starts off with anybody who is actually judging the pagan. So even though he's just ripped them apart, right, he's going to tear apart whoever is being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which we're to assume are the Jews. Um, but it's also against anyone who judges that's a hypocrite. Um, and actually, the funny part is that even though Romans is often used to talk about not needing the law, not needing works, St. Paul in this chapter is going to start off by saying that God's judgment is impartial and that it is actually based on works. Um, that's going to be the premise of this chapter. Um, but then to say that in spite of that, like we will be judged for deeds, but that our deeds themselves are always going to fall short. So he's trying to bring us into the dilemma, right? Of being like, yeah, you're going to be judged on your works, but your works are going to suffer. Um, and that our making right is going to be by grace. Showing that there, you can't divorce works and grace. They're, 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 they're inseparable. So we'll begin with verse 1. So remember, we just ended chapter one with, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, and this is where he's picking up. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, 
whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, the pagan, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, who we assume to be the Jews, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. All the stuff he talked about in the last chapter, right? That worshiping idols, being egotistical, lying, like backbiting, that whole list of, of, of evil deeds at the end of chapter one. Do you suppose, O oh man, that when you judge who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will ex escape the judgment of God? Um, so here Paul is realizing Israel's privilege, okay, as God's chosen people. They are, right? There's, there's, that, that didn't suddenly stop, right? But that it's no guarantee against condemnation for lawlessness. He's saying, you have the law and you still do this, right? So the, the, these things that I just listed the pagans do, you do them here. Um, and he says, you won't escape the judgment of the Lord. And the judgment, the word that's used here, is very much in a prosecution sense. Okay, it's not just God's like looking at you and saying, I call that evil. It, it, the, the, the words being used are very much in the civil law um, sense. To um, He He begins the clause with an emphatic you, um, which is important in the sense that he's, he's convicting the Jews who are speaking like, oh, because we're the children of Abraham, we're, we're, we're exempt from this condemnation, or we're innocent before God. And he's like, no. Um, don't forget, Paul shows off at some point, um, not really showing off, but I'm a Pharisee, right? So he's saying, I know the law, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not speaking ignorantly. Um, so as our Lord had said, don't pride yourself in being sons of Abraham. Um, so then, verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And he's, Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, now he's going to ask some rhetorical questions. Um, that was a rhetorical question, actually. That those were them. Do you presume the riches of his kindness? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant for repentance? But by your heart, and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, so he is not sugarcoating, right? This is not the Kumbaya chapter, right? So we're used to like, oh, Jesus loves you. And this is, is, is St. Paul saying, no, sorry, he loves you. But don't abuse his love. Just because he loves you, just because he's merciful, do you not understand that his mercy has a point? Right? His forbearance has a point, a repentance. Right? It's not because he is okay with it. Right? Because sometimes we confuse that, right? Um, where where we, we all forget forget judging others. Like let's look at ourselves, right? Where we have those phases, right, where we're like, but Jesus understands. Right? Of like, I'm horrible, right? But it's okay. Thankfully God is so merciful. And that's true, he is, right? But it's another thing to say, I should be working towards good, but thankfully I have a dad who loves me in spite of my shortcomings as I try to do what I'm supposed to do, versus being like, 
but I'll keep doing it because Jesus loves me, right? Or the person comes to church and it's like, yeah, and like if we're not John the Baptist, we're, we're sleeping with our, our brother's wives, right? And John the Baptist is saying, actually, that's messed up, right? Where we're like, Shh, no, it's okay. Jesus loves him, right? Jesus does love him, but he also thinks that what he's doing is messed up, right? I'm not advocating walking around and shoving your finger in people's faces, right? And saying, ha, sinner, right? But of saying, what is your disposition toward God's mercy, right? Are, are we... Are we abusive of it, right? To, to bring it back to a tangible thing, imagine if you're cheating on your spouse and you've just got an awesome spouse who knows, right, and keeps forgiving you. Is it okay to be like, I've got the best wife in the world. Yeah, she knows that I'm doing it, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, Ben, right? That, that's, that's abusive, right? It's not because your spouse forgives that suddenly it's okay to cheat, right? And so that's what St. Paul is, is, is saying, is just because he's forbearing doesn't mean that what we're doing is, is okay. Um, it's not that he's indifferent. It's not that it doesn't hurt him, right? In the same way that even if your spouse is forgiving, it's not because she's okay with it. It's not because she likes it, right? It's, it's, she's just way better than you, right? And so we need to collect ourselves. Um, so we tend to be extremists, right? And so we, I, I think we've got mostly two kinds of people among Christians, right? You've got the legalist who does everything right because they're petrified of doing wrong, right? Of like they're afraid of this judgment of God and going to hell. And then you've got the other extreme of God gets it, right? Whereas hopefully we find out how to do it. The, the, the Desert Fathers talk about this in a different way, right? The Desert Fathers talk about having three levels in our relationship with God. He's like, number one, the, like the, the bottom level, okay, and, and all three levels can save you. He's like, there are none of these that are like, God hates you, God loves all of them. But the, the, the lowest level is, is they call the, the relationship of slaves, okay, in the modern sense of slaves, where I'm doing this because I am petrified of being thrown into hell, right? I'm just, I'm afraid of my master, right? Yeah, he might beat me or punish me. Right? So, like, I mean, you, you can enter the kingdom doing that. Okay? But level two is you're the hired servant. You do it for pay. Right? Where you're doing good because I want to go to heaven. I want to be happy. Or mostly among the Orthodox, unfortunately, and, and, and maybe a little bit among the Catholics, where it's very easy for us to get into the, like, some weird form of the prosperity gospel that we might not call that of like I fast and I pray because then I get into med school um, as if that's a thing um, where we do that right where we're looking for you scratch my back I scratch yours and the highest level is that of becoming children actually children of loving our father right and we do good because it's it's good right we do good because we we love um, so those rhetorical questions that he has um are a reminder that God's patience is not the same as apathy. Okay, it's, it's a call to repentance. Um, and that if unheeded, there is a day of judgment. Right, he's, he's saying that clearly, he's not hiding from that. Of saying, well, there's going to be a day where you're going to run into that. Um, and that's going to be a problem. This is the day of the Lord. 
right? And so that's like the fig tree, um, like during Holy Week when, it, when it's cursed, right? Is that, that was the day of the Lord for the fig tree of saying, you're a beautiful tree looking like you've got a lot of fruits, but you're empty. You're a show off and you have nothing, right? And that's why Christ warned of saying, you're going to be held accountable because you don't recognize the day of your visitation, right? That's the side of the gospel that maybe in our generation we're not as comfortable with because our generation is much more about positive um, reinforcement, right? Which has its merits, right? But that we sometimes forget that there are still facts that we need to worry about, like the day of the Lord. Um, and so actually the justification in this verse, these verses is, is about finding acquittal. <laughs> Um, right on the, on that day of judgment, um, but now Saint Paul is going to shift the object of accusation. Okay, um, now he's no longer just talking about the immoral idolater, um, but he's also he's now turned his finger at the moralist, right? Um, when he says in verse one, in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, um, because you who judge practice the same thing. And I really find this one relevant in contemporary society. Um, we have a lot of moralizing um, on every level, inside the church and outside of the church. Um, I, how many of you guys have, have, have read about the concept of virtue signaling? Um, right, yeah, like, we're all about moralizing, right? Where, where we have these statements, for those of you who are not familiar with virtue signaling, it's it's where you're signaling the virtue by your behavior of what you're supposed to believe, right? So it's when you'll say things like, I mean, obviously, I'm not an anti-Semite, right? That one's an easy one for most people to, to accept, right? By saying the obviously, you've signaled clearly the stance you're supposed to have in this conversation, right? Um, it's in, not, in, in, in maybe more subtle ways where we are all France and suddenly our Facebook statuses Right, have France flags in the background when it got blown up. I'm not saying that these things are intrinsically wrong, but I'm talking about this phenomenon of showing everybody what you're supposed to believe. The politician, when they get up there, be like, well, of course I care for the environment, and that's why I'm banning plastic straws, um, because right now you're supposed to be into ecology. Right? So sometimes we'll agree, sometimes we'll disagree, but the point is we're all moralizing, on some level or another. And so the question that St. Paul is posing is that in your moralizing, you're calling it a right and a wrong, and now the question is, do you fall to the standard of your right and wrong, actually? Um, because St. Paul is pointing at least at these people and saying, well, you don't, right? Um, and so the other thing I just kind of wanted to meditate on with this section was that this chastisement that St. Paul is talking about, it's still restorative, right? It's still, um, it's not aimless. It's not, it's not wrath that he's got this emotion. Um, which I'll read a, a passage from Origen that, that says that well. But that this, this, this wrath that God has towards wrong, okay, has a, has a function, right? Because God doesn't have emotions, um, but it has, a, it has a function in the sense that it's saying, come to the right way. Come back to the image and likeness. That's who you are, right? Don't, don't be diseased. Um, and I think we lack that, right? Like as, as, 
um, as a pe- as a people, and I and I think churches like that. Like we can we can yell at society for whatever they do wrong, but I think within church we do this a lot, right? Where we moralize and we get angry, but it's usually a power hungry thing in the church, um, where we get very authoritarian and we want um, prestige, and when we call out heretics. It's not really loving, right? Like if we're gonna call someone a heretic, it should make you sad, right? If you call something heresy, you can be angry at the lie about your father. You can have zeal about what it means about God. But your disposition towards the person that you're calling in error shouldn't be joy, right? It shouldn't be, you shouldn't be excited to tell somebody how wrong you think they are, right? Because if that's your disposition, well, you're in heresy all the time. Right? Because faith is not just dogmatic and doctrinal, that's one aspect of it, but the faith is also morality. So any time that you're falling short of the image and likeness of God, well, you're a heretic too. Right? So it's really important that we, we have that sense, right? That we, we don't look with joy, as St. Paul is pointing out of this group of people, of saying, here's these dumb people who believe this, right? Or here's that idiot who did this. It should not be a source of, of joy or pride. Um, it's supposed to be about love, right? Even when God has, has this expression of wrath, it's about restoration, right? It's not about division. Um, it's a change of heart that we're trying to have in ourselves and others toward God, not towards ourselves. Go ahead, Uncle. So, <clears throat> but actually, the question it's something for us to when you talk about people who want to have power in the church and who want to do things their way and judge other things that are not right, they do it from the goodness of their heart. Mm-hmm. Like you can feel that they are loving and they want to do something. How do you handle such a situation? It, and it's among all of, among a lot of people, you know? mm-hmm. and, and in particular me, when I see someone wanting to do something and I don't agree with it, but I know that he's doing it from the goodness of his heart. Mm-hmm. How do I handle that? My own way, personally, is I look at objective and subjective. So I start with the objective because it's easier. Uh, do I have a delegated or designated responsibility? Because if so, it makes it a lot easier, right? Whereas like, if, if I have a, a known role in which I'm able to speak with a foundation that's not offensive, that's, that's the easiest. Objectively speaking, was something dogmatic broken? Because if it is, then it doesn't matter how I feel about it or how they feel about it, like it has to be addressed, right? I can't be like, yeah, the guy doesn't believe in the Trinity, but what can I say? He's such a nice guy, right? And he's teaching Sunday school to all of our kids, right? It's like, sorry, like in this church, we believe in Trinity, so that's not okay, right? So if there's something objective that makes it easier, but, but the subjective is, what's my relationship to this person and to others, right? Like, because sometimes what's, what's good is to, be able to, is to find something that you agree on first, right? And to start from there. Start something that you actually find praiseworthy. And if you don't find it, then find it, because there's always something praiseworthy about someone. In this case, we are saying it's the goodness of their heart. 
right? Of being able to be like, you know what? It's so good to see your zeal. It's so good to see how much you want to do. Um, I don't know if you've thought about it, but I wonder if some people might be misinterpreting what you're doing as this, just to put out there, um, that I think some people might be perceiving it in the wrong way, right? And then if they get defensive, being like, no problem, I'm not criticizing your service, I'm not criticizing your person, I'm suggesting that it could be misunderstood, but I'm so sorry, right? Um, if you know somebody with whom they're close that could approach in a better way, great, right? Um, first and foremost, not as an afterthought, is, is prayer, um, because even that can do a lot. But I think that starting off through the commonality is usually a good place to start. So the negative way is just listen, don't say anything. Sometimes that's the right way. It is sometimes the right way. Um, but as I'm saying, if there's something objectively wrong, then there's a duty. If it's just a difference in preference of style, sometimes better to just let the person have their way because when somebody has got a personality flaw, it catches up with them because someone's not going to be humble enough to let it go. Right? There's going to be somebody who's going to clash and be like, I'm sorry, I can't stand you anymore. Right? But that's what I'm saying. If it can be dealt with through friendship or at least kindness, I think it's helpful because if you know where it's heading and you're not trying to assert your own way or opinion on top of theirs, but instead you're just saying, I'm worried that you might be perceived this way or that this could be taken this way, you're not saying, oh, and here's my better way, here's my better idea. That's where there's going to be more of a conflict. Like, aha, they just want their way. But you're saying, no, I'm not even coming to you saying do it my way. I'm just simply alerting you to a potential problem that isn't really potential. I've seen that people are upset. It's a hard one. And that's also, again, where if there's a person who has a role, it's easier maybe sometimes to go to them and be like, this person, this is going on. People are reacting this way. I'm bringing it to you. Um, and they might involve you or not, or not involve you. Yeah. And doing, doing the right thing is helpful. Like for me as a priest, I know in one of the parishes I, I served in, I was trying very hard to practice what I preach because once you have authority, it's very easy to forget, right? So I was trying to, if the person had an idea that I didn't like but wasn't wrong, I tried to do their idea just to get into the practice of just because you get to make the decision doesn't mean that you should have your way, right? So that in the event where I would disagree, people took it more seriously because they saw that I tended to not disagree, right? I would voice my concern at all. And to be honest, I learned that from my bishop because he is like that. Does I mean is, is I saw someone do it and it made me want to do it. And so I think if, if we live the virtue it really has a strong effect, the strongest effect, I think. I usually fail at it, but... Um, One of the people <coughs> from the congregation asked a priest, uh, he said, uh, when we say, bow your head with fear and trembling, I looked at all the people and they were not 
hearing God or trembling. So the priest said to him, most probably you were looking at them, not uh, bowing your head with fear and trembling. Yeah, it's a good response. And there's another story in the liturgy where there's a guy's first time serving the sanctuary. And so it came for him to say, you who are seated stand. And he was silent. And so the priest could like, say your line. He was, they're already standing. <laughs> it's like, why are we saying this? Um, just to quote Origen here, because I really like this quote. Therefore, judgment, because this is because St. Paul turned on the Jews, judgment begins with the children of God, first of all. For God chastises everyone whom he accepts into the number of his children. Indeed, I think that even if it were possible, nobody should try to escape God's judgment. For not to come to God's judgment is not to come to improvement, to health, or to a cure. It shows you how the way that he was viewing judgment was not this anger. He was viewing it as, yeah, this is coming in to be fixed. Um, Verse 6, 4, this is coming back to works again. For he will render to every man according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will have eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jews first, and he's saying the Jews first because they have the law, and also the Greek. So he's saying you're... But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Right? So his point here again is impartiality, whether you're Jew or Gentile, evil is evil, good is good. Um, and St. Paul here is actually quoting scripture again. Here he's, quote, he's quoting Psalm uh, 62 in the, in the KJV um, and Proverbs 24. Um, where, where he says that each one is going to be judged according to the works. Um, and it's interesting because both of those scriptures will also move to a positive, okay? Um, about a positive recompense, um, which St. Paul is also going to be moving towards. Um, it's important here just to realize that... Um, when Paul talks about the law throughout his epistles, he means different things in different contexts, like when you, when you see him write his, his full arguments. Because um, sometimes he means it figuratively, sometimes he means it um, generically, like as an expression for the whole Old Testament as being the, the law, um, specifically um, the Mosaic law. Um, and it seems from the context here that he's right now talking specifically about Mosaic law, because he's talking about the Gentiles not having lived with the benefit of um, legislation, which, which seems to indicate he's talking about the law of Moses, when we get to verse 12 right now. So all who have sinned without the law, the law of Moses. I have a question. Go for it. Uh, so, you know, you, you kind of like added a little bit of a, like you mentioned, so there being, uh, so the... For everyone who is evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, and then you add, as you know, when you said, because they have the law, and then you go, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. Mm-hmm. And then how are you going to say that and then hit me with, for God chose no partiality, when you literally just said one comes first, and you explained why one can come first in the judgment, because mm-hmm. one had the law and the other didn't. But then you, you get to that part where you're talking about the favorable outcomes, right? And then you talk about the Jew first, then Greek. Yeah. And then in the very next verse, it, like, he says, for God knows so no partial, shows no partiality. He's going to so explain. How, 
Huh? He's going to explain. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's getting to that. But it's, it's, it's a good pause. Um, you hear people on the internet who say, like, in the New Jerusalem, all the Jews go in first while the Gentiles wait outside, <laughs> and then the... De- I've heard people get kind of crazy on this. Uh, to the Jew first, to yeah. the Gentile second. Yeah, and, and some people use it even to this day. Like, no, he's going he's gonna to get right into that. Yeah, St. Paul, like, I would never want to debate with him. <laughs> Put my tail between my legs. Um, all who have sinned without the law, um, and I'm going to stop before we get to his answer, right, just so you know. Um, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Right? So he's saying, it's not just because you have legislation that somehow that makes you righteous. Right? It's the doers of the law who will be justified. Right? So not sufficient to say as a Jew, aha, we have the laws of Moses, therefore we're justified. He's saying, no, if you did nothing with them, that's kind of irrelevant. When Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are lost themselves even though they do not have the law. Okay? This is very related to um, this debate about moral absolutes. Right? And so... <coughs> Origen says, I, I just, I, lo- I love Origen, so I use him the most, but um, since God is the one creator of all, these things are written on the hearts of the Gentiles. What, what we would say from a, from a Christian perspective, I think we're pretty uniform on this teaching, is that being in the image and likeness of God, all humans have a sense of right and wrong. Um, they might not identify where it comes from, but it's not a coincidence that people of belief and non-belief, less than we did 50 years ago, <laughs> Um, have some commonality in what we believe to be right and wrong, right, in matters of conscience, right, where for the most part, most people think that killing is wrong. For the most part, people think that lying is wrong um, and that their conscience would bother them when they betray a friend, right? There's, there's these things that people, that people feel. Unfortunately, as we tend more and more towards sin, as St. Paul talked about in the first chapter, we're tending to not feel those things anymore, um, but, but that there is something implanted in, in man. And this is very important, actually, because I think Christians tend to think that their, baptize, their baptism um, in, the, in the traditional churches or their profession of faith um, in some of the, the, the more new denominations, collectively, we sometimes tend to think that we become better people by that, and we're not. Right? Even sometimes we'll pray for things and think that because we're a Christian, God should hook us up. Um, and it's like, well, actually, they're all his kids, and he likes them too. Um, and so we are all in the image and likeness of God. Um, and so our, our conscience can get diseased, but our conscience is pointing at that. Um, I mean, I would digress, kind of like we talked about the Gospel of John, of saying... Um, I don't think an atheist could ever call him or herself a good person. Um, and I know that sounds volatile, but it's not because I think they're not good people. I'm saying I don't think that they could say it because they don't have an absolute, right? And so in the absence of an absolute, how did you measure? Because this is what St. Paul's gonna talk about as we get along with what's the law, as the law is this ruler, 
right? The ruler shows you what a line is. If there's no ruler, you can't define. You don't know a curve from a straight line if there's not a reference point, right? You can't call something diseased if you don't have health, right? You have to know what it looks like in its rightness, right? That's actually the claim of orthodoxy. Orthodoxia means like rightness or like orthogonal, right? It's a straight line, right? Right praise. And when we say right praise, we don't mean like singing rightly, right? We're talking about glorification being we have the right way. It's a claim, right? But of saying that we believe there's a standard, right? And that, that we're not supposed to go from. Um, so he says that the Gentiles, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts and their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps, perhaps excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, my good news that I'm telling you about Jesus, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, I want to make something really clear because I think we, a lot of us misuse this chapter, myself included, um, in, in the sense that for a long time I thought this meant, like, I thought this was a really good kumbaya moment of saying, uh, thank God there's two different kinds of laws God's going to deal with, people who don't know in one way and those of us who know in another way. That's great, so don't worry about those people in Timbuktu who never heard of Jesus because God's got his one way of dealing with them. I still think that's true, I just don't think that's what Paul is necessarily saying here. Okay? I do think that God knows how to deal with his kids and I don't need to worry about it. But, but that I don't think what Paul is saying here is saying, oh, since they didn't know that they're their own law. But what he's saying, what he's really trying to emphasize in this chapter is God's impartiality. Right? That, um, that many biblical texts say that God will repay according to one's deeds. Um, and therefore this justification by doers of the law means that there are people who might do the right thing according to the law even though they didn't know the law, right? So in the sense, for example, I'm trying to think of, a, of maybe an analogy that works is, um, I, like, I like food analogy, eating healthy by accident versus eating healthy intentionally. You're going to have positive effects from doing both, okay? But, there, but it's because there is such thing as health that a person can benefit from eating in a healthy way, okay? Um, and so, um, whether, St. Paul is saying, whether you did right according to the written Jewish law or the divine law written in the image and likeness of God, we will be rewarded glory and honor and immortality if you were good, whether Jew or Gentile. Um, evildoers with wrath and fury, whether Jew or not. But keep in mind, he's talking about before the coming of the Lord. Okay, because I don't think you can walk away from Romans thinking that St. Paul is saying that you don't need Jesus. Right, that, that's not the message of Paul. Right, so he's saying up to this point in history, um, and that he's talking about this final judgment that's coming where there's going to be this, this, this reckoning. Actually, it's the reverse, because in, in uh, 12, he says, for many as sent without the law will perish without the law. Mm -hmm. So he's addressing the Jews, the Gentiles, the believers, and the non-believers. Yes. Right. He's trying to say, listen, 
whether you have the law or you don't have the law isn't the thing right now because all have fallen, fallen short. That's what he's, like, he's getting at, right? He's saying, you Jews who think you're special because you have the law, well, you have the law and you still messed up. And in fact, these people who didn't have the law, many of them did right, right? So he's, he's more chastising right now, more than he's trying to build a theology of non-believers, right? And that's why, that's why I'm saying, I think I've misused this, right? Is that I've tried to, to have a theology of non-believers out of Romans 2, and I don't think that's possible to do. Right, like you can't take one chapter and, and build a whole theology of Paul based on it when he's trying to make a point. Um, basically, what I'm trying to get is that St. Paul's not saying you can be an anonymous Christian, right, or that you can be justified without God. Um, and so the diatribe that Hay had calmed down is going to pick up in a moment. Um, so if we can just step out for a second and review what's just happened, right, is that. Paul's condemned his Jewish um, uh, person for two sins, pride and hypocrisy, okay? The pride that he's talking about is the Jews being excited that they're Jews, right? That they have this name of being Jewish or the sons of Abraham, right? That we have the law, we're the sons of Abraham, and we have a mission, right, to instruct Gentiles because they are blind and in the dark, right? And this was, this was their teaching. Um, it's a pride of differentness, which I think we could do very well to learn from, okay? That we should not have that pride. Um, and so St. Paul is very sharply saying, listen, Jews, you're no different from the Gentiles. Um, and in fact, hypocrisy to him doesn't even capture the, the graveness of the issue. The real error, from Paul's perspective, is that they've had a monumental failure to keep the covenant... The ironically, some Gentiles have, right? Is that, that's, that's what he's saying to them. Um, and so now he's saying, in this part that we're going to see right now, that he's going to go into, he's saying, and because of this, not only do you not have reason to be proud, you become a source not only of embarrassment, but of blasphemy among the Gentiles. Your behavior has actually made people hate God, right? You, you've actually become a blasphemer of God. And here you've got to see, like, St. Paul is very prophetic, right? The job of the prophet in the Old Testament, everyone hated prophets in the Old Testament. The prophet was always the guy standing from the king saying, you're wrong, right? The prophet was the guy saying, you guys are talking about how bad those Gentiles are. Well, I'm here on behalf of God to tell you that you're messed up. Um, and so they didn't have very good life expectancies. Um, and they never won popularity contests. Um, Jeremiah gets thrown into a pit. Isaiah gets physically mangled. Um, they don't like prophets. St. Paul is being a prophet here because now he's turning on them. Verse 17, the, the diatribe begins again. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast of your relationship to God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law. And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children. These are all claims that were made and they're based on, on scripture. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that's from Isaiah. So in Isaiah 52, verse 5, Isaiah says, Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, says the Lord, and continue all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my, my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. Um, so he's saying, okay, Israel, were you called to make the world right? Um, yes, that was, that, that's true. But you have failed that vocation. Right? Like, that was your vocation, and you have miserably failed. Um, and so you guys went into exile because of it. Um, but he's also going to say, but even though you've gone back from exile, you're still guilty of breaking the same laws that, that put them in exile to begin with. Um, and I honestly think this is a monumental condemnation of us today. Right? This is not just St. Paul's diatribe against Jews. This is, I think, our condemnation against ourselves um, as Christians. Right? Like, that we are Christians, and, and, and many Christians see themselves as being some kind of special kind of people that are better. Um, than everyone else, right? Or priests, or bishops, or clergy, or servants, or people who think that they are a special breed of Christian because of their title, right? As though they're somehow better people. Um, and I've even seen this where we show off things like who your father of confession is, right? Where it'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the disciple of father so-and-so, right? Like that's some badge of honor that you're like, the disciples so-and-so, that's nice. One of the disciples of Jesus betrayed him, actually, and sold him out, right? So, like, um, I come from Alexandria Sporting, where all these saints of the 20th century from our church came from, right? Or I met Father Lazarus, who glows in the dark, or whatever claim you want to make, right? These are things that, that we say, right, of this thing, and especially... Sorry, I served in California for six years. Um, no offense to anyone from California listening right now. Um, because the culture of fame is a big deal there, right? Of, of like, oh, dude, like, I totally was there when that happened. Like, where were you? I saw that person on the beach and, like, some other cool. I saw Kobe or God Opposed his Soul at the airport. And suddenly it's like they can raise their head higher, right? Where it's like, and, and then what happened? <laughs> Right, you're, you still do the same thing as the rest of us and go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was excessive. Um, so at the same time, we boast these things, and we do nothing to bring glory to God, but shame. Right, because if people look at us who are boasting the name of our dad and doing despicable things, of course they're going to hate our dad. Right? Um, is marriage defunct because homosexuals are getting married? Or is marriage defunct because Christians didn't show how we should be married? I, I, I think it's the, the latter that happened first. Right? That made it a questionable thing of what's the point anyway. If that's what it's supposed to look like, well, they're not, they're not doing it right. Um, like Mexico was playing with the idea of auto-expiring marriage licenses. Um, like, it's become a joke. 
um, like like marriage has become a joke, right? It's it's more cost effective for the government to say here's an auto expiring license, than to deal with the legalities of dealing with the number of divorces. That's messed up. They haven't implemented it yet. It's still on the table. Um, is the church ridiculed because people were living the gospel well, and people hated it? Sometimes. Or is it more often, because I don't think most of us are John the Baptist, or is it more often that Christians teach something and do something else? Right? We're, we're, we may be the reason that our dad is, is, is blasphemed. Um, the question here for personal reflection, I think, is do you care for the truth of prophecy? Right? Paul's being a prophet here. Do you care for the truth of prophecy? Um, or do you seek a false prophet? Right? Do you, are you looking for them to say, all is good, all is well? Right? Or, or are you willing to look at it and say, yeah, I am, I'm, I am fall short? Um, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, um, he's, a, he's a boss. Um, I think, especially because he was a former atheist, um, people who have come to belief intentionally tend not to be freaked out by challenges. Um, and he makes a really observant comment about Christians who have been Christians most of their lives because, you know, Christians baffle me. He goes, a good scientist, when, when a good scientist finds out something's wrong with his or her theory, isn't upset. They're happy. They got a new piece of information. They found out something they thought was or wasn't what they thought, and now they can do something with it. He goes, whereas Christians, when they find out something isn't what they thought about God, they actually like, God, please don't let me see, and bury their heads in the ground. <laughs> and he goes, instead of saying, Lord, thank you for letting me find out that you are not what I thought about this, that the reality is this, and then what does that mean? Anyway, it's just food for thought. Um, at the same time, St. Paul is making the point that the transgressions that brought them into exile are not just a thing of the past. Okay, That these sins that they're doing right now are the very reasons they went into exile. So they shouldn't just boast in ha, well, we are a liberated people and we have our city again, right? But of saying, but you're still breaking the law. That's still a problem. That's not, not a problem just because you're not slaves in Babylon, right? It's, it's still a problem. Verse 25. So, this part is really important because this section, 25 to 29, would have really, really angered the Jews. Um, like it's, it's extremely offensive, which I think gets lost on us. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew, the person is a Jew, who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal, his praise is not from men, but from God. This is extremely problematic, and still would be to any Jew today. 
This would be the equivalent. This is going to get really contentious. I don't know if I'm ready to bring it up because it's going to be the topic of probably chapter 3 and 4. But do you baptize or not baptize physically? Because, and this is why some people use this chapter to say you don't need to baptize with water. Right? Because he's saying, well, Paul, Paul is, what he's done is he's just redefined a Jew. Right? The Jews are saying to be a Jew, you must be circumcised, you must do these rituals, and you follow along. St. Paul is saying, actually, a real Jew is the one who's circumcised internally. And, and not externally. He's like, because if you're circumcised externally, what meaning does that have when you don't keep the law whatsoever? Real circumcision is a matter of the heart. And he's not speaking groundlessly here because St. Paul is well-trained, right? So he's looking at the books of Deuteronomy and Jeremiah. Um, in Deuteronomy, Israel is called to return to her covenant obligations to God. And it says, circumcise then, this is Deuteronomy um, 10, circumcise then the foreskin of your heart. And do not be stubborn any longer. Um, likewise, Jeremiah calls the people to circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, in order to avoid judgment. That's Jeremiah 4. And then in the new covenant, covenant of Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says that God says that he will write his law on the people's hearts. So what St. Paul is setting them up for is a new covenant. That's a problem in first century Judaism, right? We speak so comfortably today, right, of, yeah, that's, that's the old covenant, right? Whereas the old covenant was the covenant, right? And suddenly St. Paul is saying, no, there's a new one, um, and it's internal and not external, and suddenly saying, you, you don't need to do that anymore. This is not comfortable, right? This is not comfortable at all. And he's setting up that the new covenant is going to be spiritual and not physical, and he's setting up the ritual itself of circumcision is not the act that made a person holy. Which we should agree with till this day. Right? Even about our own rituals. Right? Is that it is not the actions that make us holy. Not the physical rituals. Rituals are aids. Rituals are helpful. But if we ever mistake the ritual for the goal, we have a problem. Right? Some people will look at Christ when he says, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and he has that whole thing going on there. But not everyone pays attention to what he says at the very end of it, where he says, these things you ought to have done. Right? He says, actually, yeah, these are fine. But not to leave the other undone. Mercy, justice. Right? Is that you forgot the, the point of this. And this is so easy. I, I, I'll digress for a second, because when I was a kid, so... There's a tradition that when we kneel, you don't have your palms flat, right? Because um, there's this, this, this tradition that when Archangel Michael defeats Satan, he's humiliated, and a sign of defeat was that he's flat on the ground. So I go to kneel in church, and I'm like six, and some uncle like yells, and he's like, no! And he's like, you're worshiping the devil. I was like, what? Because um, <laughs> your hands are flat. And I was like, this is Satan worshiping. <laughs> and I was petrified to go to sleep for weeks because I was used to sleeping with my hands flat under the pillow when I went to bed. So I was like trying to sleep and couldn't because I was worried I was worshiping the devil. Um, and so I, 
hold my feast. I, when I couldn't handle it anymore, he was trying to leave church. I'm like, can you just wait a second? I'm like, is it okay if, if I sleep like this? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was psychotic. Um, and he was like, yeah, what's wrong with that? He's like, I, just, I don't want to worship the devil. <laughs> and so I'm sure uncle was well-intended. Um, it's, it's a nice tradition in the sense of there's something to be learnt from, from traditions. Like there's something nice in it, like the... Don't walk barefoot on Sunday because you had communion. Don't chew gum. Like, these aren't rules, okay? These aren't rules that have to be followed. But what's nice about it is saying I, there was something different about today, right? So, so Paul is trying to draw attention out of saying, ritual, the act itself, if you went like this, you didn't become less holy. The guy who did this instead, right, that didn't put the pump down, isn't somehow more holy than the other guy. Right? So if you're doing an action, it has a meaning, but it's not the action that makes this your state, good or bad. Um, but I think he was, I don't know, so, uh, St. Paul was uh, criticizing the Jews who had a covenant with God mm-hmm. and do not do like what God Asking them to do and you compare them with the young ones. Mm-hmm. didn't have the Quran. Right. So, the Jews what good is that to you? Yes. And keep in mind that for Paul, he's a Pharisee. This, this is not what he grew up with. Right? Like he's had a change of heart. Right? But he's also trying to deal with Jews who are telling Gentiles, you have to do ablutions before you go in. You need to do your washings. Right? They're saying, yeah, you can join the synagogue, but after you're circumcised. Right? This is the context of, of the problem, too. And so he's like, okay, you Gentiles, don't get big on yourselves. You Jews, you're not, you're not special when you don't behave the way that you, according to the gift that you have. It's basically like saying, you're just showing off that your dad is rich. It's like when we were kids, where it's like, my dad's better than your dad, right? Or like the kids who are showing off that they, that they live in a, in a mansion, right? Where it's like, you didn't buy the house. <laughs> like, your, your parents work for that money, right? And so he's saying, don't, you're, you're not special just because of your, like, you are special of who your dad is, right? But don't take that for granted, right, is what, is what he's saying. Um... And so this is going to lead to the really obvious question. Why bother then? Why bother being a Jew? Right? That, that's, that's where this is going. Or, alternatively, did God stop being faithful to the covenant of the Jews? So like, this is like Paul's very organized with where he's, where, with where he's going. He's going to take that on in chapter 3. Okay? Because then he's like, so then what? Right? That, that's that's going to be chapter 3. I was debating doing 2 and 3 together, but I'm going to do 3 and 4 together because he's going to go to Abraham as a prototype of somebody who was counted as faithful and righteous before the circumcision. Who is also, so that St. Paul is saying, here's a person we can, in whom we can find reconciliation. Right? That he was counted as righteous before, before he was circumcised. It wasn't his circumcision that made him righteous, and he's going to use that as the example. Um... And then he's also going to call into question of God's faithfulness of saying, did he not call Israel for a purpose? Right? Are, like, because like, the challenge of St. Paul is, are you trying to make everything useless? 
right? Than 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 what then of, of of the Jew. Um, so what if national Israel, right, the state of Israel, let him down? Paul's going to say, oh, God's going to be faithful anyway. Right? That even though works matter, God's faithfulness will always be. Period. There's no qualification for it. God's faithfulness. That's why I had the launch feel about the Keosini that first time. God's faithfulness to the covenant is always unwavering, right? That's what Paul is going to make absolutely clear. He will not for a moment break his covenant. Um, even though all humans, and that's what he's, he's accomplished in these two chapters, all humans stand guilty before God. That's where he's at. He took apart the Gentiles, took apart the Jews, saying we're all standing guilty, um, with the Torah witnessing against all of us. Okay? And so then the question is going to be, how then do we become righteous? Right? And that's the dilemma that, that he's going um, to take on. Um, just to have some spiritual reflection on this, on this part and then open up to you guys to any thoughts and questions and, and meditations. But I look at this as the... Again, these two extremes that we can have. We, have, we, we definitely have Phariseeism live and, and well today, okay? But I think we also have the other extreme of this chapter live and well today, of this spirit of things, right? Um, when I was younger, I think I cared a lot more, not that I'm old, but about the um, externals of things, right? Like the physical laws and, and regulations. And I think that it makes sense, right? Because we are sensual people. We have five senses. We interact with the senses. It's easier to deal with the senses. Um, it's tangible, right? It's physical. You can interact with it. And so I think when we do physical things, it's easier to feel accomplished, right? To say, I prayed. I fasted. Um, I volunteered, right? It's easy to feel like we did something with those things. Um, just like it's easier to measure somebody's shot put skill, right, by pulling out a, a measuring stick and seeing how far the person threw the ball. That's easy because you can say this guy is better than this guy because he shot this far, right? It's 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 easy to look at, um, but it's a lot harder to judge somebody's gift at rhetoric or oratory how well they speak, right? Like it's, it becomes a lot harder to get into the inside of being like. Why was this person a more prolific speaker? Is it because of their pitch? Was it because of the point they made? Was it because of their volume? Was it because of their emotions? Right? It becomes a lot harder to measure that person. It becomes a lot harder to measure the inward man. So I think it's very natural for us to look to the physicality, right? to look for the letter of the law. I think that it's human. Right? And I don't think that's um, horrific. So we like laws. Right? I've met many people who are like, when they, after they're done struggling with faith, just being like, listen, Abuna, I really don't care about the spirit business. I know he's real. Just, just tell me what to do. I'll do it. Right? You want me to do this? Maybe I'll do it. Right? You want me to volunteer this day of the week? I'll do it. Just like, I don't want anything more than that. I'm cool. Because it's, it's easier. Right? And you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I would love that personally, to be honest with you. It's so much easier. Um, so we, we confessed monthly. We took Eucharist. Um, and I've heard so many people in their sermons be like, okay, here's what I have to do weekly, daily, monthly, and they've got their schedules out. Um, 
And so we, we, ten, we, we measure piety in tangible works. Um, but the progression towards spirituality in the matters of the heart is difficult, right? Um, and I think in this regard, we are woefully ignorant, um, the majority of us. Um, and more frequently, unguided. Um, because one can judge in the heart to be right only when A, there's a knowledge of spiritual truths by which to measure, um, and B, and I think maybe more importantly, when there's a brute self-honesty that allows one to know if they are right in the spirit. Um, so I'll, I'll use an example because we're, we're fasting. Okay, um, so those who might take, so the, 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 by the letter of the law, I, which I used to be, and I really miss being that guy, I'm not going to lie, um, of like, nope, modified milk ingredients, not touching it, um, or like, um, it touched the same oil that the burger was in, I'm, I'm not having it, right, that's like the, the letter of the law. But then you've got like us enlightened folk. Right, who will come in and be like, what's offered to me in love I will not refuse. <laughs> right? And there's merit to that. Okay? There is some merit to that. Right? But, um, or, but, but where do you stop with that? Right? So I can be on the plane and be like, oh, I don't want to create a big fuss like, about the vegan meal. I'll just accept what's offered right, to me. And it just so happens that nothing on here is that, I mean, now you can select a billion different food rules you didn't used to be able to, but um, do you know what it is that we're about? And you have the brute self-honesty. If the issue is that you want to eat these delicious foods, then maybe you should say I'm fasting because the problem's in you. It's not a self-righteous issue. Because the brute honesty will make you answer a real question. Are you being self-righteous or not? Because you do know the answer to that question. Right? You do know that about yourself. And sometimes the answer might be a mixture of both. Where you do want the food. But you also don't want to offend. And then you might have an actual dilemma. Right? But often we really do know what's going on. Right? And so we need to have the knowledge of right and wrong, first of all, which I think most people assume they have, but don't. That's something, the lack of discipleship is a real, a real problem for the inner heart of man, right? Of, of, of somebody teaching you faith, teaching you morality, right? And that we're in a generation that thinks you can, that everything is a DIY like section, I, I still remember when chapters like the section for do it yourself was like literally a shelf, right? Now it's like a third of the store, right? Because I oh I'll Google it, right? I'm guilty of this myself, right? Like I, I'd rather just I'll figure it out, right? Whereas apprenticeship used to be a big deal, right? In in every discipline, not just religion, right? Of having somebody show you what it means, right? There's a beautiful story in the Desert Fathers of a guy, he's a novice that wants to be a monk, and he's assigned his Abba, and his Abba doesn't talk, and is driving the novice crazy, because he's like, the dude doesn't talk. And he'd ask questions, and the Abba's just silent, 
Um, and he's watching all these other people whose albums are talking. <laughs> Why do I get stuck with the mute? Um, and so he's like, I quit this guy, I need a new one. So he goes to find someone else and they, they're like, Why? Why are you leaving this guy? He's incredible. And he's like, He doesn't talk. <laughs> like, I would love to learn. He doesn't talk. Um, and so they went and rebuked the elders. So they went to him, like, What's wrong with you? Kid wants to learn. And he goes, If you can't learn from my silence, what will he learn from my words? Right? And what he was trying to show, I mean, it might be extreme, but what he was trying to show in that part was saying, watch and learn. It's not just about talking nicely about God, right? But what do I do? How do I? I mean, monasticism has a specific niche, so we're like, but of, of saying, what does it look like to be a monk as opposed to having this grandiose theory, right? Like, I've Almost anyone who's ever come to talk to me about being a monastic, just because I was drilled in it from when I was young and going to monasteries, almost always the first question I'll ask them is, do you, do you know what a monk is? And almost always they don't actually know. And they go, then you can't be one. Right? Because if you think that the monk is being anything but a Christian who lives in this particular way, then, then, you're, then you're not in the right place. A monk's just a Christian who's living a monastic life, as rhetorical or as circular as that sounds. Because if you think there's something special about it, that you're, that you're an angel on earth, or that you're some special form of man, you're not. You're a Christian who lives in a monastery. And just like there's a Christian who lives in a marriage, and there's a Christian who lives in the city, and there's a Christian who lives in the village. You're just a Christian. Right? So we need to, we need to see how, how it is. Um, Can I ask a question? Go for it. So, okay, so in 14, um, for the Gentiles which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. So if I'm interpreting that, right, it's kind of like um, someone who doesn't have the law, or like the knowledge of God, fulfill the law without that knowledge, then they can be saved kind of thing, anyways. Mm-hmm. Isn't that kind of like a claim that atheists make to, to kind of say that that's why God's unnecessary because even without the knowledge of God, like I can be a moral person. Like how do you, how do you, um, yeah, it's just like, oh, well, see, this is why I don't need this book because I can just be a good person without, you know, so like, how, right. do, you, how do you combat that? And I'm saying that doesn't seem to actually be his point. That's actually okay, so how I, I used to I'm take it, that, right? Yeah. Is that what he's saying is like using the whole health food analogy is he's saying there are people who happen to be healthy by accident so just because you had the, the, the nutrition book didn't make you healthy. In fact, these people didn't have the book and they happened to be healthy. But he will move forward in his argument. It doesn't end there. And I think that's the problem is that if we read two by itself, it will say, that wasn't enough and that wasn't enough. You weren't okay and you weren't okay. What's going to make you okay is specifically the person of Jesus Christ. That's where he's going to go with it. Because um, I used to use it in that way too, of being like, okay, I get that we do need Jesus because we know, and so I'm held accountable because I know. But the person who didn't know, as they then maybe they're law to themselves. Um, and that still might be the case, but it's not what Paul's saying, right? So if that happens to be true, it's not because Paul's saying that here, it just might be true, right? That's something I don't know the answer. I don't know. When people try and figure out how God is going to deal with non-believers and how God... I'm like, I don't know. I don't. Right? I'm not going to speculate. I'm not going to theorize. I don't know. I know that he's merciful. I know that he's just. And that he doesn't have a conflict in his being about those two. Um, It's hard for me to fathom um, because I do have a conflict (laughs) with those two. Um, 
But that's one part of, the, uh, part of it. The other part of it is what I would say is the whole ruler issue. Right? Is that, an, is that you might be able to make the claim about the atheist, but the atheist can't make the claim about the atheist. Because for the atheist to call it good, what's the definition? Right? And that, that's a real, a real issue. I remember when I read Mere Christianity, I didn't like it much the first time, now I love it. But um, I think it's because I wasn't struggling at the time. But I didn't think his morality argument was a big deal, but it's a really big deal. Um, like, it's a really big deal because he brings up that whole concept of, like, how did you judge it? Right? And you have a sense of it. You clearly have a sense of it. So how did you judge it? Right? Um, I was dealing, I was talking to somebody in another city, and I got a little messed up because I had never met somebody in my life who didn't believe that truth existed. Um, like, I met, I, I, like, most atheists I know believe that there may be an absolute truth that we can't arrive at, but they're not against the idea, most, most usually, of absolute truth from what I met. Um, but, like, for example, murder or killing, because that's one of the easier ones to agree or not agree on today, right? I was saying, okay, well, like, is killing wrong, right? And most people would say it's wrong in most cases. They might allow death penalty. They might allow... Um, Abortion, if they consider that killing, they might allow just war, right? But if you ask them, for example, what do you think of the Inuit who, under specific circumstances, are permitted to kill infants? Is that wrong? Are you comfortable calling it wrong? Because if you're going to call it wrong, you're saying that there's a definitive there. How? Right? And if you're saying that they're specifically wrong, then how can you not apply that to other circumstances? And if you're going to say, well, because it depends, my question would be, it depends on what? And at some level, it's going to be because it's just what I think or what I feel or whatever. And that's the point. Doesn't mean an atheist won't be able to call it good. They can talk about utilitarianism. They can have different methods of trying to arrive at a relative good, but they can't call it good. They can't make the claim that it's like, uh, like they wouldn't be able to make some kind of claim for intuition because they would have to have, like, okay, where did that come from? Kind yeah. Of thing, right? that, 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 they would have to be forced with that question. And how would you, like, so, so usually the argument, I don't want to, uh, sorry if I'm digressing too much, usually the argument like, okay, no, it's part of evolution. Oh. It's okay, well then, then, but still, to call it part of evolution, you're making a moral evaluation. You're saying, for example, if the cavemen were killing other people, or cannibals, for example, that you're saying that they're somehow more primitive. Why? On what basis have you decided they're more primitive? What if they're more right? If evolution is saying survival of the fittest, in some cases, they're winning. So are they right? Um, or if I'm just an animal and not in the image and likeness of God, because the image and likeness of God is, is, a, is, is a theological belief, it's not an evolutionary belief, okay? Then why aren't we mad that lions kill animals for food and say there's a utilitarian use to that? Then why can't we? In fact, some, some animals kill and it's not always just for good use. Sometimes it's protection, sometimes it's, it's a whole bunch of things. So it, it raises a whole bunch of problems. So I think an atheist couldn't use Romans 2 by default, A, and that the Christian can't use it for that by saying that 
Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says, I'm just trying to say you're all messed up. Very effectively. Um, so I think the point, actually, of the natural law discussion, which is what you brought up, um, is that he wants to stress the situation of the Jew who's seeking uprightness under the front of the law. And he's not really speaking about the Gentiles as their fulfillment of the law, per se, um, in context. Um, instead, um, he's saying that the Jews, this is, I think, a better way to read Romans 2, in my opinion, and it's just an opinion. I think what he's, what he's saying, and I think with good reason, is he's really using it more to point out the flaw of the Jews, of saying, don't take refuge in your book because there are people without a book who did better than you. That's really the point I think that he's, he's trying to make. And that circumcision doesn't save you. Circumcision has two aspects of it. God's promise, that's why they circumcise. Fulfillment of the law. That's why it's a sign of the covenant between God and people. He's saying, so God, his faithfulness is never going to change. But you keep breaking the covenant. Right? Because you're, you're not keeping your circumcision. That's why he redefines it. Um, and so he's saying, in not keeping the law in any way, you have broken the covenant, period. Non-conditionally. So, there's six major themes of this section. We've dealt with four so far. Okay? In chapters one through four. First was to talk about God's impartiality towards good and wrong. Good and wrong is good and wrong, period. Okay? It doesn't matter who's in good or wrong. There's such thing as good. There's such thing as wrong. Second, he's trying to say that the Mosaic law is no guarantee of salvation. Just having it isn't, doesn't mean your success. Third, um, divine wrath, which is God's confrontation with wrong, um, comes on all equally. And then fourth is that the circumcision doesn't make the Jew less vulnerable to sin. Just like your baptism or your declaration of faith doesn't make you somehow less able to sin. Right? That's why St. John in the first epistle, um, he's writing against a, a group of Christians who claim that they don't sin. And he was like, uh, no, you, you do. And anyone who says they don't is a liar, which is a sin. Um, and so he's saying, we're not, we're not saved. So in the fifth and sixth issues are going to be the next two chapters. He's going to deal with the, um, the privileges of the Jews. Um, and he's going to bring it into perspective of where does all of humanity sit so that he can move into... The solution. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Any yeah. other questions or comments or remedies? Number one and number three, pretty much the same, which is God does not have partiality. And in the good time, he said on the decision doesn't benefit you. So is it similar? Number one is saying, um, yet towards persons. Okay. That there's not a person that God likes more than another person. Whereas number three is saying deeds are also either good or bad, regardless of who does them. So one is about the action and the other is about the person. 
which will amount to the same thing, it mattered to them because of the claims they were making. So, I, I'm, as I read uh, verses 25 on, I feel like St. Paul doesn't do uh, enough of a job speaking to circumcision, like physical circumcision, because there's, there's, an, there's, an, there's no overlap. So he says, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision is become uncircumcision. So he creates a category of those who are circumcised but break the law. And he says, that's no good. Totally agree, right? But then he says, um, so if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not the uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have, that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So in this sense, he says that if you're circumcised, and break the law, you are liable to be condemned by those who are uncircumcised and keep the law. But what about those who are circumcised and keep the law? It almost makes it seem like Paul is actually saying there is a value to physical circumcision and the keeping of the law, like in, 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 in the strictest of Jewish senses. And that's why in 725, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. So it's almost saying like there is obeying the law, and then if you do that, might as well get circumcised as well. I'll almost like I don't know. If I'm I'm making sense here. Like, does is Paul outright saying yes? Circumcision is still a component of the Christian belief. No. So what he's trying to do again is reading him in context, right? Because we're it's easy for us to say oh he could have or should have or whatever, but he's he's talking to certain people. So we come back to the concept of circumcision is a sign of covenant. God's faithfulness, human keeping of the law, right? So St. Paul is trying to make the point of saying when you break the law, you break the law. Your physical act isn't what made you holy. It's the keeping of the law, right? So he hasn't dealt with those who kept the law and were circumcised, right? He's saying you pompous Jews and you pompous Gentiles. He didn't talk about the humble Gentile or the humble Jew. Mm-hmm. Right, he's talking about the, the wrongness of both sides, and then he's going to say, Right, we just haven't got there yet, but you don't need to do this anymore because there's a new covenant, and only because there's a new covenant fulfilled in the person of Jesus do we not need to do that act anymore, mm-hmm. right? But then he that's gonna say the next chapter is gonna be like. So is it useless to be a Jew? Of course not. And he says that. He goes, of course not. He goes, they are God's chosen people. And this is what avails from circumcision. And this is what God did with these people. No, there is a lot of goodness to this. Right? He's just saying, don't, don't abuse it. It's not about the circumcision. Because he's trying to come back and say, God's relationship with humanity wasn't about physical deeds. Right? If you want to get, like St. Paul doesn't say this in this epistle, but really... God's covenant with, with, with Abraham was because all of humanity rejected God. It wasn't even God's will, actually, to have a covenant with only one kind of people. God wanted the whole of humanity. And that's why the prophets were always pointing at the bringing of the rest back in. Because God didn't look, want a special club. God's desire is that the whole world 
right? Be believers, not, not like a special club of people, right? So St. Paul's going to come back to that and say, what then was the point? Why yeah. would it matter? Because not, I mean, not to argue with you, but just looking at that verse, it yeah. seems like he's saying, you can have a root beer float, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, 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 like a Sunday Jubilee or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the cherry on top is circumcision. It may not make a big difference in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you don't buy you know, a float or the cherry, but it's always nice to have a cherry on top, you know? So is that what he's saying? Because he said that circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. Even, even if he's not saying that's not the focus, it seems to me that he's saying there is a benefit to it. The there, is, there is a benefit. I'm trying to think of an analogy that works. So let's say there's a system that worked at the company, okay, and there was an open system where everybody could just go to cafeteria and eat whatever they liked. Okay, this is a horrible analogy, but, but go with it. Okay, people were abusing it anyway. And so the CEO says this isn't working. So from now on, everybody's going to be given a swipe card that has a certain number of funds on it. And if you swipe this card, you can eat. You're still not going to pay. But once, when you swipe, it goes red and it stops. And that's going to make everybody start being more decent because suddenly they're not going to be able to access. Okay? Horrible analogy, forgive me because God doesn't do that, but we'll go with it. Right? And so what St. Paul is trying to say, so let's say they're like, oh, aha, but now that we have these cards, there's so much we can do with it. This is going to make people more nutritious. It's going to make, because now they're limited with how much food they can, now they're going to ration. Now they're not going to splurge at all. It's going to make them have better budgets. It's going to make them, make them, make them, make them, whatever. Right? All these things that came out of having a card. But the problem is when you start saying, we're good because we have access cards. Mm-hmm. Right? And then saying, we're special because we have better budgets, because we have access cards. Where St. Paul is saying, the budget card came because of an issue. Budget cards aren't holy. You are not holy for having a budget card. And just because you have a better budget because of it, and just because you eat better because of it, and just because of these, these consequences of it, doesn't mean anything about the freaking card. Right? And so, and then he's saying on top of it, in fact, there are companies in which people don't need budget cards. That's probably a better analogy, right, to surprise with the Gentiles. They didn't have a card, and they ate fine, and they had a budget. Some people had budget issues, but I'm saying there were people who existed that were nutritious and budgeted well and didn't need the card. So you're not special because you work for Blackberry, and you're not less special because you work for Apple. These are all different things. I think that maybe, does that work as an yeah, analogy? It, it, it almost redefining circumcision not as an end in and of, of itself, but sort of as a tool, and there's value in the tool. That's like, exactly yes, what he did, actually, was redefine it. That's why, like, literally he goes, a Jew is not. That's why I'm saying this is so offensive. Mm-hmm. Because he's literally coming out of a whole group of people and saying, you're not a Jew, and it's like, I beg your pardon. <laughs> right? Like, like it, it's, it's, very, <laughs> it's very offensive. Mm-hmm. I, I what he's saying is, He's saying the whole covenant is broken if you break a single part of the law. Yeah, but if you obey the covenant and you do what God wants, then you're okay. Yeah, but if you break it, there are others who do better than you. He's not saying covenant doesn't mean anything. 
Yeah. Can pose at least. That's yeah. how we can break this. So between verse 17 and 24, there's a lot going on there. But specifically, I'm referring to 21, where he says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, be steal, and he goes on with all the examples. So, what qualifies anyone in any situation to ever? give someone uh, a word of advice from the Bible or um, like because everyone sings everyone like there's no one who's like a perfect person so uh, and also sometimes someone anyone including myself may have a moment where they're feeling extra virtuous and they want to use something from the Bible to you know give someone a word of advice but it also applies to yourself where it says do you not teach yourself? So, is it best not to just say anything? Or That's why I was talking about the self-honesty part. Right? Because you're either judging or you're not. You either care or you don't. Right? Like, how many people would be offended if a friend said, dude, that's a deep cut. Go to the hospital. Right? Like, I'm like, oh punch your own bruises, right? Like, we wouldn't, right? Whereas if you're like, you're stupid, you've got, you've got cut. Then you're like, you're stupid, right? Like, 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 it's gonna evoke whatever reaction. So when something is done in love, it's done in love, right? And so it's one thing for a person to be looking for faults in others, that's wrong, right? Like when Christ says, like, you're looking for the, the log in your brother's, the, the speck in your brother's eye and you have a log, Right, but versus um, many other scriptural commands, including from Christ, of saying like, when you have ought against your brother, take him to the church, right? Or of saying like that, that we're supposed to care for each other. So it's a matter. It's a matter of care. Judgment is when I'm when I'm making an evaluation of the person, right? So for example, and especially if, if when Christians, we have a morality in common. Right? Like for whatever theological variations that we have in different denominations, we have the same morality. Right? That should be comforting. Right? Because you should be able to comfortably say, we shouldn't do this. Right? Like let's say your best friend starts cheating on his wife. Are you going to say nothing? If your best friend starts, is addicted to gambling and you can see that, are you going to say nothing? Right? Like, cause if so, like, is that an act of love? To say, oh no, how do I judge? You're either judging or you're not judging. Right? So... But that's why we, we only speak truth, yeah. right? We only speak truth. And, and I think it would be good for us not even to look for titles, right? My own spiritual father said to me once, um, when I was first ordained, we were talking about guidance and discipleship and, and that kind of thing. Um, and in a particular context, once he said to me, he's like, don't ever call yourself spiritual father or guide. 
right? Like he was like, let them call you whatever they want to call you. Let them choose the name of your relationship and you don't, right? Because it's not about becoming something. There's, there's, an, there's an ego in that, right? But if we are speaking the truth of the gospel, then what reason have we to boast, right? If someone's asking a question for which God has a clear view on, I'm not being righteous by saying it. God is, right? And so I'm only being self-righteous and pretentious if I'm pretending to be it, if, I, if I'm claiming that I'm those things, right? So, like, if I'm telling the guy, like, oh, you ought not to do this and this and this. Well, if God said you ought not to, then it's true. You ought not to. It's irrelevant whether you do or you don't. You just need to repent, right? As much as the other person does, right? But I'm thinking more along the lines of, like, if a Christian group, like, it's a group of people who are Christians and everyone just starts cussing. It's like, well, why are we doing that? Right? Or we're going out to do hookah or shisha together. Why are we doing that? Right? A Christian shouldn't be uncomfortable to say, I don't want to do that. Because theoretically, we, we agree that there are certain things that are, that are right or wrong. Um, and so it's not me who made it right or wrong. And if I recognize that I'm going to be humble in my approach, nor, again, am I saying walk around <coughs> telling people how they're wrong. But it's an issue of love, it's an issue of relationship, right? That if I really care about someone and I see that they're about to fall into a hole, I'm going to scream, danger, and I'm not going to be thinking about whether they're going to be upset that I yelled, right? Because I care about them not getting injured. And the minute they're not injured, then I can give the hug and say, I'm so sorry, I was worried you were going to fall. Thank God you didn't fall, right? If you're mad that I called it out, then I'm sorry that I upset you, but I just don't want my friend to fall. And I also hope that you would do the same to me, right? And, and you should want it. So like, never seek to chastise, never seek to rebuke, but never be afraid, especially with those you love, to say, hey, I'm a little worried. Um, you know, like, things aren't what they, they were. Is everything okay? Just alerting them that something's different. But not, not truth beaters. I hear uh, an analogy about the lunch cards. What if you have your lunch and you swipe a card? <laughs> but that's actually Paul's point. Paul's like, even you would have had the card, some of you guys have used it. So that's actually his point. Thank you. I have a It seems that Paul is alluding to some of the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, it seems to say explicitly, I will come and make a new covenant. And then even in Ezekiel, like 37, 21, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. Mm-hmm. At this time, were Ezekiel and Jeremiah rejected? How did they read these passages, or how did they rationalize? Like, uh, did, how would Because uh, it seems offense, offensive, right? What Paul's saying <clears throat> about the circumcision, the token of the covenant. But now he's saying he's going to make a new covenant. Uh, do you know anything? Did they ever? Did they just refuse to? Re- I mean, we know our Lord read uh, from the school of Isaiah. Yeah. Do you think they would ever read this section? In the synagogues? Yes. 
Because Christ himself does, right? Christ goes in and reads it and says, today it came true. Um, Later on, like in, in yeah. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when it really... No, they would have read it, but I don't know that they would have... And, and, and I, don't, I can't speak authoritatively here, but I think they would just not have got it. For, like, for example, they might have taken it as a threat, right? Of God saying, if you don't behave, I'm going to give it to someone else, right? That's a possibility. Clearly, they didn't like it because they threw Jeremiah in a hole. Um, and, and Ezekiel, I don't remember how he died, but it wasn't in a good way. It wasn't a natural, like, happy old age. Um, so they were, they were despised for it. How much they understood it is hard to tell. The other thing that I think might be hard to tell, and I'm not an expert on those prophets, like, again, to be very, very, like, clear that I'm not an expert, um, that I wonder is how much was taken seriously while they were alive, Versus after they died, right? Versus, like, because when they were alive, they were hated, right? Like in Isaiah's time, they completely ignored him or Elijah, and they went to these false prophets because they wanted someone to say, good, 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 right? When Isaiah was saying, don't go to Egypt, you're screwed if you go to Egypt. And like, well, we want the prophets who say, go to Egypt. So they found them, right? And then it didn't go so hot for them. So I wonder how much was after they died that they're like, we messed up, we should have listened, to like in the sense that they might not have taken them that seriously while they were alive. It's more as by saying, yeah, 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 it's, it's the angry guy again. Because um, that seems to be the tone a lot of the time. But I don't know. That'd be a great thing to, to find out. If you find out, let me know. Because no, I'm sure that there are experts on this that might know that. Um, and there might be Jewish tradition that wrote about that. Right. Um, and I haven't read it. That's why I'm like, I think there may be actual answers out there. I just I don't know it. I don't have any Jewish friends. It would be interesting to ask them um, in their tradition how they see them today because they know that in their own time that they didn't. So I wonder, I wonder if they could learn some insight. Your question, no. Thank you, guys. Right, we shall pray and then... This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.